Good evening, everyone, and welcome to a very beautiful Sunday evening. And you are here on the podcast of Radical Visuals with your host, Radus Tokitsa, tuning in from the beautiful country of Romania, more precisely from southern Romania. It has been very long since we've actually recorded an episode. I think if I may be right, we've only published our manifesto and then took a very long break in which we've been thinking and maybe actually procrastinating a bit too much. This podcast was initially meant to be a podcast of discussing video games and any other visual materials through a very, let's say, radical, even Marxist and anarchist perspective. We've given birth to this podcast due to the desire of interrogating those sources that often, let's say, don't necessarily get that much targeted criticism at them. Very often we hear video games being criticized for the game mechanics they've implemented, for the killing mechanisms, and for how fun it is to kill zombies or Russians in a certain game. But not so often we actually hear about the issues of war, and how detrimental that can be, or maybe how some states are actually promoting some kind of colonialism through video games, or how a certain vision of the world, the very individualistic, heroic, soldier vision is promoted. But often those just go targeted as, it's fun. There's nothing political about it. Well, that was the main idea about Radical Visuals. To have this place where we can go and discuss in a very freely flowing way video games, more precisely, with other sources as well, such as films, graphic novel novels, and so on and so forth, and to try to interrogate their place in this world, and not necessarily to think of them only as some kind of parallel imaginary universe, which is completely, completely different than our world, but rather very much integrated and maybe to a certain extent, the product of our world. In doing so, we have actually raised a couple of points of criticism, which have led us to view video games differently. Why we took this period, this break, let's say, it's for a very good reason. I had, personally, the creator of the podcast, I had to actually dive a bit deeper into the games of my childhood, replay them again to actually maybe get a point of comparison in the way I feel now about those and the way I used to feel about them before. And I decided that what could actually be quite good was to imagine that this episode is going to be, let's say, kind of an interview. An interview which it will have some kind of fictional elements because Radical Visuals aims at being an environment of storytelling, first of all, in which people can tune in and feel like they're listening to a chapter of a novel, which is done in a very more amateuristic style than actually a well-written novel. But you get the idea. Basically, I want people that when they listen to this in their car or just before going to bed to feel like they're entering a new dimension, to feel very immersed with the characters. Even though the characters might not actually have names, apart from the narrator, Radostokitsa. But, getting back on track, we're having here in our studio today someone that very willingly took their time to ask me some questions. And the first question they actually came up with was very simple. It has two words, and it is video games, question mark. Well, video games, if we want to approach this question, we should actually think first 
what are video games? And what exactly do we think we actually mean when we say we're actually playing video games? For a very long time, we accepted that video games are a way of passing time. That was at least the way I was. they were perceived for a very long time in my own community back in Romania and also in other communities where I lived throughout my life. One of the big problems with that, I think, is that it restricts the definition of video games to solely being for pleasure, solely being for leisure, without necessarily including a pedagogical or even critical component or political component to them. Why I say that is problematic is because I think very often we just accept this definition and we go forward with it without really trying to expand on it. That is why we get so many people that think that games are not politicized and that we should keep politics outside of our video games. And what they mean very often by this is to keep female characters or let's say gay characters or a certain narrative that doesn't fit theirs outside of video games because that is immediately seen as being political. And I think this literally comes from our error and from our societal and community error of trying to define video games or at least saying that defining them is actually a bit more difficult than we think it is. But let me dive to a different question, which is how did you discover them? Because I think this is very much required in order to understand their place in the community as well. I remember getting my first computer at the age of three. I remember it very vividly. My father and my cousin, my father who's close to 60s now and my cousin who I think is in his early 30s or maybe close to his 40s, came home one day and we were all going up the stairs in my apartment building and they were having a couple of bags in their hands. They were all black bags, oversized bags, plastic. And I don't remember asking them any question, but I just have, let's say, fast for a moment in my own memories and I just see the computer installed on a table somewhere where it used to be some kind of bedroom or living room in my house. Now the structure of it is very much different. And I remember them teaching me, or at least my dad, that's what my father tells me quite a lot nowadays, that he was the first to teach me how to turn on the computer by pressing on the power on, power off button. That for him, I think it was a huge moment since none of my parents were ever raised with computers. My father got his first TV at the age of 14, and actually his entire house did not have flooring for a very good amount of time, but he got his first TV at the age of 14. And my mother, yeah, she grew up with the TV, but technology was never a thing at home, especially in the entertainment and informational and educational way we think of it nowadays. Computers came quite late into our houses, so that should have been early 2000s when my parents actually had a personal computer. I think they haven't really used it for a very good amount of time. Maybe it was, it, it was when I actually started and started going to primary school that I started getting a bit more involved computers. And then slowly the smartphone made its way into the household. That was way much, way later. And then, you know, nowadays we have tablets, smart TVs, and I think we're getting close to buying a smart fridge as well. Well, why was this important is that uh, video games came into my family and into my own life without necessarily being fully understood by anyone. None of my parents grew up playing video games. My father used to play football with a homemade football ball made out of rugs that 
people used to clean the dust in their houses. And my mom used to play when she had time because she usually used to work the land when she was younger or used to used to look after her cousins or after her brothers. But when video games came, I just remember I just remember playing Tomb Raider at a very early age. And I remember the scene very vividly. I don't remember which game it was actually in the series. I remember my cousin coming over, who is six years older than me. We must have been five, respectively 11 at the time. And one of her main goals was to lock this guy that was following Tom Raider in a fridge in a mansion. I don't really remember why that was happening. But that's one of the most vivid memories. And then I remember my parents, my father at least, playing a bit later on Zuma on the computer in solitaire. And that continued for a very good amount of time up until he got a phone and started you scrolling on Facebook. But I was never the child to, let's say, be disciplined about the games I used to play. My parents were very much aware of my habits of playing Grand Theft Auto Vice City and Grand Theft Auto 3, or of my desire of being able to play WWW, no, WW, WWE, not WWW, I'm sorry. WWE SmackDown vs. Raw 2007, but they knew that I couldn't since I didn't have a console. They were very much aware of those violent games. They saw me playing Far Cry. They saw me killing people in Call of Duty 2 and Call of Duty 1. They saw me planting bombs on Counter-Strike 1.6. And they saw me doing all of those things that could be could be perceived as being outrageous and dangerous for a child at that age. I remember when I used to talk to kids uh, in my neighborhood, none of them would say their parents grounded them for any of their activities. We were five or six or seven or eight or 10 or nine, I do not know. And we were playing games that can be even R-rated or at least M-rated. And none of the parents were saying anything. They used to see the boxes, but they were like, yeah, you know, it's, it's okay. It's a game at the end of the day. It won't really affect them. And this was one of those big aspects of of games basically i got introduced uh, to them randomly by having installed some games on the secondhand computer i bought and then i remember going to my father's place where people used to play a very different type of game they used to play zuma a lot they used to play those candy crush predecessor versions i don't really remember their names they used to play those for fun and to relax at the office it was a very different type of game so all of it was very leisure based and educational games came very late it might have been, I might have been in fifth grade that I have, I remember getting a CD with some kind of educational games, but they were extremely low quality. And compared to the games we were getting from the developers in the United States, you know, such as Call of Duty or, or from the ones in the UK, such as Grand Theft Auto, playing a game that taught you some skills about life or mathematics or geography was just a no-no. First of all, it was very low quality. And second of all, it was just not appealing. And no one ever tried to interrogate that. I remember, I don't think we've ever talked about video games. Yeah, I don't think we've ever talked about video games, to be honest. Not even from a critical, let's say, Marxist class analysis perspective, but about video games in general. No. Teachers sometimes used to be concerned about boys playing a bit too much video games. And this can lead us to a new question, which is... uh, if there was a gender or class component of video games, and there was a gender and class component of video games, at least in my community. 
usually boys used to be the one that played most video games and girls used to be more attracted to those online flash games with barbie dolls or at least this was the these were the things they were talking about as we started to age entering high school video games were not necessarily part of the discourse as much my friends and my, my group of friends but people still used to play from time to time some csgo some league of legends some dota but it was never it was never something very central it stayed it stayed very male dominated for a very long time and often since i'm also coming from such a small community and often when girls would be playing video games it would be something so exceptional that maybe people would have to point it out and the class component was quite obvious to be honest and and i mean it's obvious if you if you not only talk about a small romanian town you know, very picturesque, uh, post-communist, post-industrial building, but it is true about anyone that wants to get into gaming, basically. Because, because it just gaming is not necessarily a cheap hobby to have, and you could make the case that yeah, you could get a phone. Everyone has a phone nowadays, but even getting a phone, you know, it's not something cheap. And then you must have a certain phone to play games. But if, you, for example, you want to get a computer, and mostly all of us had computers at home because we were required for school, you know, they were not subsidized by the state or anything, but our parents bought us computers or laptops or anything like that. Well, you could play video games, but the main difference was in the video games you had access to. And, uh, and I remember very clearly that People that used to have consoles, and I'm not talking only about latest generation consoles. I'm not talking about PS4s in 2013 or whenever when they came out. I'm talking about PS2s even in 2015. You know, it was still something. People had money to basically spend on that. People had money and they could afford uh, to spend that money on those video games and actually to have some time, you know, to have actually the free time to play those. For those of us that didn't have it, you know, the phones were, when smartphones were available, uh, the smartphones were a great medium to play those. We used to play a lot of free games, such as Angry Birds, I remember, was free, and uh, Cut the Rope, I think, was big uh, a bit a while ago. And then we used to play on computer, such as uh, free games, League of Legends, Crossfire, uh, Counter-Strike Online, and other as such. But there was actually one game which I have deliberately left out for a very good time. But this actually will allow us to jump to the next question, which is what games define your generation? One big game that defined my generation was Metin 2, or Metin 2, how we say it in Romanian. It was a Chinese-owned game. China, I think it's also produced by, it's produced by a Chinese company with terrible graphics, terrible gameplay, terrible storytelling pay to win in many cases you really had to pay to actually advance through that game otherwise you would have to invest 500 hours to get to uh let's say an average not even average but to a, a decent level and it was this game that attracted so many people and it attracted it first of all because it was free and second of all because it could run on a great amount of computers this game was not meant to revolutionize the market in that way that you think, you know, the latest graphics in Call of Duty is going to be. No, this game was going to revolutionize the market in many European countries in the way that it could penetrate a great amount of market, let's say, shares and market sectors. It was not focused only on people that like this and that. 
It had people that wanted to be social. It had people that actually want to be competitive. It had people with a lot of computers, all of them being different because there were so low requirements that even if maybe, maybe even a 10-year-old computer or five-year-old computer in 2010 could actually run it. Metin 2 was not at all intense on the computer. It was very soft. It was very low on requirements. So people could actually play it, and lots of them played it, since not so many of us in my community actually had, let's say, good PCs, because lots of us used to have them and keep them for 10 years without really changing anything to them. The current PC I'm having here, on which I'm playing Call of Duty Modern Warfare and Modern Warfare 2, is almost 10 years old, actually. And I've just upgraded the RAM with putting 4 gigabytes more in it, but we cannot even talk about DDR4 here. We have DDR3 1600 megahertz and has a 10-year-old processor in it. And that is still the reality for many people, but that was the reality back in the days as well. People will have computers for a very good amount of time. Upgrades were not necessarily accessible due to the fact that not so many of us actually knew what ran inside of computer. And then we would have to stick with games that could actually run, you know, on all computers and run at a decent frame rate because we wanted them to be playable. And one of them was Metin 2. And Metin 2 was such an interesting case because it taught us a bit more even about class, but I think we should have been a bit more receptive to listen to it and to understand because it it proved that message that if you have money, you can advance. And if you have connections that are willing to put in the work and the money, you could very easily advance very, very fast. And now Metin 2 might be a bit more approachable without actually putting your salary into it. But back in the days when we were playing it, it was not a very easy game to play without donating. You had to donate to actually maybe win something and to be very successful on the server. Otherwise, as I said, it would take you hundreds of hours. And that was one of the big things of it. And then if we actually think of the gender component of Metin 2, well, you had a choice. You could make a male or female character. And I remember actually at the point learning this trick from other people, you could make a female character and beg other people from for resources. It was not something high level. It was very low level. You would beg them for potions that would regenerate your health or mana, which was this, uh, which was this variable that basically allowed you to cast spells. And I remember doing that, or I remember having a shaman, a shaman. I did not know it's said in English, that would heal people and give them some kind of perks by using some of the abilities. And people would, yeah, would just desirably level me up. Some of them would text me asking if I want to be their girlfriend or if we want to hang out together. And uh, it was an interesting illusion. At that time, I was never thinking critically of it. I was accepting the very sexist and gender narrative of society that women uh, will, ev will always get more than men getting games just because they're women. And that seemed to translate very easily in the game as well. And there always seemed to be this predator prey mechanism present in there that you as a female character, even though there is a male in the back of the character, you might have been subject to messages asking if you want to be their girlfriend or anything like that. So that was very present. And that actually was, I think, very influential in my way of, of perceiving video games and looking at them critically. That might have been maybe the first critical lens which I've put onto my eyes to look at video games, gender. Because I remember very clearly when Metin 2 came out, when, when I started playing Metin 2, one of the big differences was in armor. 
and the female armor was always so sexualized it was crazy like men you know they would level up and they would get this armor that would basically barely allow them their face to even be visible you know it would be a very strong armor on them and women would have this armor that would actually reveal more and more maybe to a certain extent at least the shaman the shaman uh the shaman armor used at the point to even have stockings and a garter belt and I was asking myself some questions. It was like, wow, how protective is this going to be in battle? And you're actually able to see the entire leg and maybe the chest, the breast, and some other areas which are perceived to be sexual by society. And that was one of the big criticisms that I started developing at the time. It didn't develop in the way that, wow, you know, video games are so bad, you know, they want to make us, I don't know, uh, hate women or something like this or perceive women as being more beautiful than men. No, it was more than it was more just an interrogation of why is that actually taking place, and one of the answers I found out was the fact that the realm, or let's say the difference between reality and video games, is often not that heavy. And what I mean by that is that the distinction we used for such a long time to say that video games live somewhere else, reality is here. There is no actually bridge between those, or maybe just the player is the bridge between the both of them. There is actually quite a lot in common. And we take those general components of society and put them in video games. We replicate society. We had we have a very fantasy-like approach to it, definitely. We're slaying wolves, we're slaying werewolves, we're slaying beasts, bosses, and all of this. We're shooting people through walls and never dying and always being able to respawn. But the gender, class, and military components are often there, are often actually not touched. They reproduce the exact hegemonic components of our society and project them onto video games. Very seldom does it actually happen that those are criticized. Very usually they are actually reproduced. And reproduced in a manner that allows them to be reproduced by the players when they come back into society or when they go into other games. But with those, I would love to take a little break. I need to go and drink some water. I need to go and relax a little bit. And we'll come back for part two when we're going to discuss two last questions and some future future thoughts for radical visuals. Thank you so much. Enjoy this break. Welcome back. And thank you so much for staying with us for this amount of time. Uh, this is a very early attempt at working on the podcast. I didn't mention something initially that I would like to mention now. I'm using radical radical visuals as let's say, a place where I can practice my voice and where I can also practice my podcasting skills in order to translate them and to use them into future projects. So Radical Visuals is not necessarily a very serious podcast in those regards. It still holds value because those are thoughts that just come from the top of my head. I don't really practice. I don't really have a scenario. I just freely speak into the microphone and just try to engage and to develop myself more critically because I believe practice is very essential, and I must do it somehow. But before break, we were talking about Metin 2, and which has been a very, a very inspirational game for many of us. And I say that because I think it set the standards for... I'm sorry, I think it set the standards for MMORPGs and for games that follow, and for the ways we would interact with games, looking for that social component of them, while also looking for ways in which we could advance faster than others. Uh, this was another case with all my friends. For example, I'm one of 
those people that I don't think has donated money or has used in-game currency much. I might have bought th something once, but that was never really my thing, to be honest. But to be honest, I would love to go to the next question, which is what were what what was the critical discourse around video games when I was growing up and even recently? Uh, the critical discourse was not there, to be honest. I think people were becoming increasingly critical about donations in video games at a point. It was not necessarily from a very greedy, anti-corporation way of looking at things. It was more simplistic, more surface level. People used to think of people that donated as having a very unfair advantage over them and maybe as being some kind of cheaters to a certain extent. I'm talking specifically about my team too. I didn't play CSGO, but I remember actually watching videos about bets and about how people are critical of bets happening at the time. And I think those, you know, piling up on top of each other led to the syndicate scandal, which I think has basically put Project Syndicate off the map for a very long time and many other YouTubers with him. And then there were other components that people are critical of, such as... Uh, such as actually I have some I need some time to think, but I would say the gender component was one of them. People are becoming a bit more increasingly critical about it. And then another one of them was actually in a negative way, I think, was the one when people were getting were getting very sensitive about having women in game or having women in fictional historical games. I think the big scandal was around Battlefield One, if I'm not mistaken, or Battlefield Five. I kind of lost track with those when they put a woman on the cover and they focused the story around this woman character and people were like, well, this game is not historically accurate. Well, guess what? Actually, the entire Battlefield series is not historically accurate. It's a fictional historical series. And maybe you can even get rid of the historical part of it and just call it fictional. It's inspired by real events, but it doesn't really follow as they actually unfold it. And apart from that, maybe... Maybe people actually that started getting a bit more into the indie game community, but this was very small. I had just one or two friends who were into this type of community, started being a bit more critical about it, started actually asking more questions about how AAA games, it means games with a big budget and coming from big corporations are produced, but often it was not very much. I remember even when my friends used to play very political titles such as Bioshock, or Bioshock 2, or even Bioshock Infinite, or uh, The Last of Us, or more recently God of War, we would still only focus on the playing aspect of it. It was how fun is it to swing the blades of Kratos, or how annoying it is that we cannot really skip cutscenes, or how bad it is that this character actually talks quite a lot, and doesn't really focus that much on battling, even if God of War is really focused a lot on violence. Another important aspect, I think, from games and the critical discourse around them was was with mobile games. Mobile games, I think, have been a very weird entrance into my community. They came as games that were becoming increasingly criticized because people that were playing those were not considered real gamers, which brings, again, a bit of a class component to it. So you must have a computer or you must have a console to be considered a real gamer. 
this thing has persisted for quite some time up until people don't realize that. I think this argument doesn't really hold ground and trying to define a true gamer by the console they're playing actually makes you buy into this capitalist system even more and makes you actually play their game as they want, you know, make competition amongst people so they become more competitive and they side with brands and become more loyal to them or more loyal to platforms. But that was one part of it. It died very shortly after. And another one of them was people actually becoming critical of uh, games not being free, but games costing money on mobile. People were all, were always expecting that on mobile, at least in my community up until uh, maybe one or two years ago, that games should always be free. And I don't understand the argument behind that, to be honest. I personally never really quite understood it. Because they said, yeah, games should be free because phones are different than computer. This is the main argument. And I was always like, yeah, but you know, actually, developers' work gets put into this. Maybe if it's an indie game, they're really putting a lot of work into it. It's a lot of individual sacrifices that they're making, maybe not going out to their friends or doing something like this, you know, to finish up their game. So there is a lot that's happening in a development of a game and personally I developed my own criticism of it and I tend to oscillate towards buying a video game on mobile at least uh, rather than actually getting the a free one which in most cases it will have actually in-game purchases and it will make the entire experience worse completely completely worse in many ways for the sake of analysis I'm also going to focus on free games here at radical visuals but I, for example, look for discounts and I was able to get Bastion for free. I got Florence for one or two dollars, I think, and many others. I think the only one I really paid in full was Minecraft when when my partner and I used to play it, I remember, a while ago. So that's, that's the only reason I really got it. But over the years, I think the critical discourse around video games has improved. I think we see... I was actually just searching on Google before recording this episode... I was doing a quick search, an advanced quick search, seeing if people used to look at politics and video games in the same way, you know, five years ago, and it was not at present, but nowadays it is. And people are starting to touch on things such as propaganda machines and how Call of Duty is used by army recruiters to recruit potential people for the army and so on and so forth. So there has been a lot of this discourse happening lately. I think it's also coming with the financial crisis, with movements such as Occupy, Black Lives Matter, and other radical movements that have been happening throughout the years, and the radicalization of the new left of 2010s, and the establishment of Democratic Socialists of America, and other such parties or other such working groups. But now, getting on to the last question, since I should actually go and play some Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 and work on recording a new episode and work on the research, I would love to tell you guys very shortly after, it's video games now and how do I play them? Well, I do play quite a lot of video games since COVID has started. Initially, I was playing Heroes of the Storm, which is free on Battle.net. Uh, just as a way of killing time and readjusting back home. I remember I set the schedule to play four hours the first day, then three hours, then so I, I would just deplete it, you know, time by time, and I would be able to go and do my work, actually, rather than just spend every day, play every moment of the day playing video games. But nowadays I rely a lot on my PlayStation 4. 
on my PlayStation Portable, on my PC, and on my iOS device to play games sometimes, yeah. But in the way I play them, I think it's more critical. Uh, if I play a game just to maybe relax or get my mind of things, uh, I would usually just boot it up and put a podcast to listen to, to be honest. I'm not that fascinated uh, about game mechanics. This is one thing about me. I'm not really a person who would love to talk about Modern Warfare 2 versus Modern Warfare 1 shooting mechanics and how it's much better in Modern Warfare 1 or 2 or whatever. Maybe I will discuss it for two minutes, but it's not really my interest for very long, to be honest. And I would not judge those games based on this. I'm not a person that really cares about graphics too much, to be honest. I play Modern Warfare 1, Modern Warfare 2, probably on medium or low. And I don't really mind. Like, it's fine. As long as I can play it, it's fine for me. I do enjoy playing games on the PS4, though, because it allows me to have that, to have those graphics. But I think even without those graphics, I will still be able to enjoy the game very much. For example, one thing I deeply love about, uh, right now I'm very invested in playing GTA V. I've never played it. It was always my dream to play it. Never got the chance to do it because my computer cannot run it and I finally saved some money and got it for the PlayStation 4. And one of the things I love about it is just dialogue. Dialogue and interactions with the environment. I am never really fascinated about, for example, looking at the graphics or anything like this you know i think i could skip over those when the story is good and the the social critique is there and let's say even even the good dialogue is there i can really enjoy that game and i played gt5 and other people's computers on low and i was able to enjoy it i was really able to be tuned into it so for me graphics is not really something that important I do care sometimes about them. I can stay, you know, and be like, wow, I'm mesmerized by the environment of God of War or Horizon Zero Dawn. But but it's not like something that, for example, would be a would be a deal breaker for me at the end of the day, I think. And then how else do I play video games? I think I think I tend to look for um, a variety of games. I tend to look for games I played in my childhood quite a lot to understand how I see them then and how I see them now. I tried to look and remember the times when I used to play those games. I remember very clearly when I used to play Modern Warfare 1, Call of Duty 4, and how my cousin told me about it just when it came out. It, it's, such a, it's such a beautiful story about how gaming was advancing in post-communist Romania. It was, I think, only 20 years after the revolution. I was about 10. Or maybe it was actually a bit, a bit later. Yeah, it might have been a bit later, and I'm wrong. But basically, just imagine, it's still a post-communist country in many ways. Uh, it, gaming is still not a very big thing, but people are getting into it. There are still LAN parties happening. There is this and that. And one thing that I remember my cousin showed me is we had this magazine called Level, which was the national gaming magazine, basically. And he showed me an issue of it, and I fell in love with the magazine, even though I didn't probably read much of it, to be honest. I was just looking at photos and seeing how cool it is to to kill people in Call of Duty Modern Warfare 1. And they told me that this is the cool game, and you should not play Call of Duty 2. Because I started playing Call of Duty 2, when a friend of mine told me that his father played Call of Duty 2. So gaming was very word of mouth at the time. Yeah, we used to play games before we had the internet, and we would just we would just you know give each other CDs or DVDs or USB sticks with those games, install them on our computers and play. That's how I actually got GTA San Andreas. I got it from someone else. It was way before I actually had internet in my own house. To be honest, I had it and I was playing, and I didn't understand a word of it. 
maybe this is how I actually developed my English skills because this is a very important distinction. Back in the days, I used to play games to develop my English skills. Nowadays, I sometimes play them in a foreign language. I used to play them in French. For example, Horizon Zero Dawn in French is quite impressive. But other games do not really offer the experience, so I still stick to English as the main language. But apart from that, games have been, let's say, sources of research for me nowadays. Uh, back in the days, I used to watch. The, I used to play them as leisure time from school, leisure time before school, or leisure time. I don't know, in between something. Uh, nowadays, if I, I would say they might be the fifth thing I turn to if I want to, if I want to relax. They're not the first one. I might go on a bike ride. I might go for a jog. I might go on a walk. Or I might call a friend, and only then the video games come. And now I look at them more critically. I play them on a more scheduled manner. I tend to actually take time, put it in a schedule, play a video game. And I try to immerse myself in the environment as much as I can. I try to pay attention to things that, uh, let's say, I think are worth, maybe in a way, maybe I think all of them are worth paying attention to. But as I said previously, weapon mechanics, I do not necessarily pay attention to them. And I think there's a lot to say about them. I think there's a good amount of criticism that must be brought about them. But I do not have yet the skills to analyze them and I don't have the time for that. So I focus on other aspects such as dialogue, such as the environment and such as ways in which it tries to make everything look exceptional. And apart from that, I think I tend to stay a bit away from free-to-play games nowadays, yeah. I think uh, due to the fact I started also earning an income, or I had in the past at least, I was able to buy second-hand games or pay for some discounted games here and there. But I just started staying away from free games because they usually have a paying component to them. And I was, I'm really not in favor of that, to be honest. I understand, you know, free games actually offer people the chance to play a game they never could have. And, you know, you could, you could use some f money to pay for some cosmetics and stuff. I was never really a big fan of that, to be honest. So I decided not to do, not to opt into that model. Maybe there is some criticism into on my own behavior, into some kind of, oh, look at you, you know, you are just someone that actually has money and can afford to do that. Well, I guess, you know, maybe that can be the case. But it was just also a personal choice because those also lots of those free-to-play games really get a chance to suck you into them. And I, I try to reject this personally. I'm not the person that would love to play a game two hours a day, you know, maybe 30 minutes or one hour if it's for very intense research. Otherwise, no. But apart from that, maybe actually... Relaxing with video games sometimes can be happening. I love playing them sometimes the weekend, especially with COVID. They have been amazing. And I love campaigns and single-player games quite a lot. But with those being said, I think I revealed quite a lot about my own personality and about the person you're going to witness on Radical Visuals from now on. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you, and thank you so much for taking the time. We're all learning, and I'm learning as well as you're listening to this. This was a very ad hoc episode of Radical Visuals, and I think there are going to be many of those uh, coming uh, coming soon. I'm putting together a little series on Call of Duty Modern Warfare, with the exception of the last one, because it's extremely intense on my computer, and I don't have the money to buy it for my PS4. So if any of you could borrow it uh, from a PS4, I would definitely love that, and I would love to play it. But apart from that, uh, I'm very excited to use this platform, Radical Visuals, to create the material that will later go into some more in-depth research. To give a bit of a heads up, I'm working on an article 
uh, for the Bowling Review. It's uh, it's more of a journal or a magazine published by the Bowling Review Group in which we're trying to touch on critical things. And one of my pieces is actually on Call of Duty and the politics of video games from a very Grumpian perspective. This was a spoiler. You're going to find three episodes coming soon. I hope they're going to be in those following days. And I don't know when I'm going to upload them, but you'll find them. Thank you so much to those that listened. It was a pleasure having you here. And I hope you have an amazing, amazing, amazing rest of the week. And I hope that you, from now on, when you play video games, will play them critically. Since this is the way they should be played. Thank you so much. My name is Radu Stokitsa. I hope you have a good time.